0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday, the 29th of the 7th. Michael, how are you today?
1: I'm very well, Gary. Thank you. And how are yourself?
0: Oh, I'm quite good, and I hope the listener has been quite good since last we spoke. I think we'll start off strong, Michael, with one of your favourite topics, Nubian young women.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's Nubian great. Nubian royalty. Nubian, well, it's it's two passions of mine: Nubian royalty and Victorian, bra- b- b- Free, F- Victorian French bronze casting,
0: dressed in silk and restrained by uh, metal.
1: Uh, the Shelburne Hotel, which the readers may be aware of, Dublin's iconic luxury hotel, built in eighteen twenty-four, in eighteen sixty-seven, to adorn the exterior. They had uh, French master casters produce four statues, which uh, anybody who's been done, anybody who's seen will, will know them well. There are two figures uh, who are which are princesses in the middle, and then on either side flanked by two figures who are their handmaids, who, who are also who happen to be who are also slaves which is indicated by on their ankles by the way the ankles caused quite a scandal at the time because all four figures have bare visible ankles which is considered to be quite outre quite louche at the time anyway the two uh, young girls the sort of pre-adolescent girls have these gilt uh, manacles on their legs Which I think some people didn't think were manacles at all. I didn't think they were
0: manacles. I've never looked at it terribly closely, but I assumed it was sort of a a decorative uh, ankle bracelet kind of affair. Anyway,
1: the four figures are carrying torches, so they would have been illuminating the the exterior of the hotel. Now, the Shelburne Hotel, which these days is owned by the Marriott Group, an American international hotel group holding, has decided without really much at pre-advisement or hoo-ha are, I under, as far as I understand it anyway, without any planning permission has removed them from the front of the hotel. Now the, the Shelburne is a very definitely a protected a protected building and the its exterior and its decorations and its street decorations and street furniture would definitely fall under that protection too and the reason is because these two figures are slaves and it was done in the context of recent world events. Now, uh, I don't know if any of this matters because this is at times a little bit like it feels like having a, a trying to have a conversation with Lear in the middle of the storm. The figures are Egyptian was which was very much the fashion of the time. The two central figures are Nubian princesses, which you adv- which you adverted to, right? which would and they are wearing for pharaonic royal headdresses, which means that they are figures from what would be the twenty fifth dynasty, which was the dynasty which went was when the uh, kingdom to the south of Egypt, the kingdom of Kush, the Kushites invaded Egypt, conquered Egypt, and for around a hundred years, around a century or so. Ruled as pharaohs, so this the the uh, in great debates that have happened at different times about the ethnicity or the race of various dynasties. We're, we're fair, you can be fairly sure, I think, that the the, the Kushites that were at the pharaohs at that time, the 35th dynasty, were in black were black Africans. So they are these two princesses, and these two princesses have two slave girls who are also uh, black Africans. Now, they're not caricatures. They are in no sense grotesque. They are other beautiful bronzes. The figures themselves, they're pretty little girls. In no sense, there's nothing low or deforming or degrading or devaluing about their expression in art or their artistic representation. But simply the fact that... Figures representing a time which is more than two and a half thousand years ago, war slaves has be, is considered to be too sensitive. It's a question. Oh, no, it's you know that you know that, that old thing in comedy when you know you, people make make a joke about something, and it's considered to be intense. People, oh, I'm sorry, is it too soon? Apparently, it is too soon to do. This is like. Two two thousand six twelve seven thousand 7000 years, years ago, when every single society that we know anything about had slaves. What is the point of this exercise?
0: Well, I mean, my first thought when I heard about it was just to wonder if the Shelburne had wanted to get rid of those statues anyway. And this is really just an excuse because they figured if they touched them beforehand, I mean, Georgian Dublin would have been all over them. Yeah, true, whereas true. if they if they bring it down and say, "Well, it was about slaves," and you know, given the current climate, we uh we thought we'd take them down. That those groups may just let them do it. Also, a lot of their, a lot of the people who use the Shelburne are Americans, who have gone mad as a country. And so we could be looking for sense in a decision based on the actions of the mad. And that,
1: in a sense, is what we're we're talking about here. We were talking about in a minute about other things. Is this sense of madness, which has been... uh, And the the contagion of that madness. The United States has gone mad and now we are catching the madness in, in, in its wake. This is not a a description of anything in any way, shape or form connected to chattel slavery in the United States. It's nothing to do with the American Civil War. It's about a fact, a historical reality. Are we going to come through every artistic representation of something which was distasteful or troubling in history and remove it? Because it might be in some sense triggering now it is as it's reported the hotel has done this off its own bat not as the result of any complaint they've received from anybody they've also said they've taken them down for now they haven't made any decisions regarding what they will happen what will happen in the future whether they will stay taken down whether they will be returned whether some of them will be returned or whether other Different statutory will
0: be put in their place. It, it does seem very odd for I mean, the Shelburne underwent a massive renovation uh, a couple of years ago. It is it is a Marriott. It is part of a massive global chain. It is a very expensive hotel. Not to actually book a room, but it is a very high class, well maintained hotel. The idea that they would take down four iconic parts of the frontage of the building and not think what would actually happen to them, or what would go up in their place, strikes me as bizarre.
1: But at a different time in a different moment, I would, I think, maybe ascribe more probability to your slightly cynical conspiratorial theory that they actually they're, they have a plan all the time and they're doing this to cover their tracks, because that's the kind of thing that you would associate with planning in, That kind of thing going on in listed buildings in Dublin for and in Ireland for a very long time. I think this is just an example of of the madness of people being looking or desperately looking around the gaff and thinking, God, is there anything that might get somebody offended? Is there anything that'll get us into trouble? Anything that could get us into trouble? Let's get rid of it. So, if you go into the national, if you go into an art gallery, what would survive? If you went into a gallery which was primarily, say, dealing with um, art before, say, the Impressionists, up to, say, th- Goya, I mean, would go I don't think much of Goya. Would throw right Goya would be pretty triggering? Hieronymus Bosch. Classic descriptions of any, any description of classical acti- of classical antiquity. Michelangelo's David? Well, I'm sure it's naked. The fact that he's naked is probably problematic, is it? Um, I don't know. I I, I find it baffling.
0: But I, I think it's ultimately just a form of contagion. On David, I can legitimately see in, like, maybe three years, someone saying that the scale of David is an assault on them and <laughs> makes them feel inferior. And therefore... Uh, therefore it needs to go. Um, and to that person, I would say, it's only like that because it was designed to be put on a roof. That's why the proportions are weird.
1: Also, and again, this might... I'm, I'm, I'm not being... At least I'm trying to be funny here. I can imagine the circumstances some, where somebody might construe an argument that David was, in a sense, an artistic embodiment of Zionism and a revanchist Israeli position on the ownership of territory in Palestine. Because David, how does he become king? Because he goes out and he slays the gentle giant of the Philistines Goliath and then after Saul he has a problem with King Saul, of course, and, he goes on. and then he goes off and establishes himself as the great king. So somebody might just say that David was, if you actually de- if you deconstruct the politics of the art of David, that that's what it's actually all about. And we, This is this is happening in the same weekend not that I want to pile on the man, but because I think he was, I gather he was responding not to his own particular concerns, but concerns that had been brought to his attention. The councillor in, was it County Meath? Who wanted to get rid of, because he felt they were unsuitable for junior search students, the texts of To Kill a Mockingbird and John Steinbeck's of Mice and Men.
0: Yeah, so this was, I believe, Councillor Alan Laws. Laws, Yeah. And, yeah, he he said he wanted to get rid of them because he didn't believe that... um, I, I listened to an interview he did with Niall Boylan, and it it seemed like he was saying he didn't want any piece of work that uses particular racial slurs, uh, to be allowed, to be discussed, or to be on any curriculum. And it, it's it's it was a very bizarre interview because the very first thing Niall Boylan asked him is, "Have you read the books you want to ban?" Yes. And he said that he hadn't, but he was very, very familiar with the movie.
1: Oh, okay. Um, Which
0: on, if you're calling for the banning of books, and your very first line is, I haven't, but I've seen the movie adaption, that's not a, like, that's not a sign that says, I am a serious person with considered views.
1: And you know, Gary, neither of them are books which are exceptionally long or indeed difficult with many hard words.
0: Neither of them are books which support racism.
1: No, no, I think that's fair. That's fair. They're also beautiful. I don't know if that's important. They are beautiful human stories of pain and suffering and family and love and triumph and failure and stuff like that. And human life and human existence. And beautifully, beautifully written. But maybe that doesn't matter anymore. Maybe that's the kind of a white, privileged, bourgeois defence of systemic racism. And I'm using that. I'm sure that somebody will say that to me if I found the right person.
0: I mean, the interesting thing was he, um, the motion he proposed at Mead County Council it says, Meade County Council calls on the Department of Education to remove all literature from the school curriculum that casually and repeatedly uses offensive racial language such as To Kill a Mockingbird and Of Mice and Men, which have no place in today's curriculum. Now, even just on a factual level, Of Mice and Men, okay, because it's, I think, if there's a racial slur in mice, in Of Mice and Men, I don't remember it, but I I can guess which character it would be directed towards, but that might be done casually. To Kill a Mockingbird does not use racial slurs casually.
1: Not casually, no. I mean, they're used in the context of... They're they're used in the mouths of people who would have used them.
0: And to to make a point,
1: to make the point that these are those people.
0: Yeah, which, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is largely about racism, where of mice and men, racism is... It's in the culture around them, but it's not the key point of the story. God, no. But, I mean... Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. The N-word, as we
1: call it, is used regularly in the uh, Either are we going to boulderize these texts to tidy them up and clean them up, or, or are we just going to take the texts off, off the shelves? Dostoevsky, I'm fairly sure, has language which would could be construed as anti-Semitic.
0: Wait, here's the thing. I don't doubt that Councillor Laws has good intentions here, even if he's never read the book. I think what he says is, look, people in the community, uh, minority people came to him and said that after those books were read, their children had suffered racial abuse in the classes and that the books made them uncomfortable. And he moved forward on that basis. So I can, I, can under, I don't think he has any bad intentions here, and I don't think he's just randomly calling for the burning of books. But at the same time, it's quite a thing to ask for. I think a little bit Particularly if you haven't then bothered to yeah, read the books.
1: I think that a little bit of reflection on what you're actually asking for might have maybe made him pause and perhaps maybe look for a slightly more nuanced approach.
0: To how we are to address this. this problem. Particularly those books as well, because To Kill a Mockingbird is largely and pretty openly against racism.
1: Yes, it is. I mean, now you could...
0: Which a casual reading of the book would reveal. So to pick that as an example of a book you want banned sort of indicates that you either have no idea what you're talking about or just anything, anything that mentions race is done regardless of if it's positive, if it's negative, of what it is. And then he was saying about children not being able to understand the books and that it should be read for later. And then it turns out he hasn't read the books and he doesn't understand them. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a problem. I, I'm just thinking off the head. God. Well, famously, uh, Agatha Christie wrote a, uh, a book which was made into a, a movie more than once, the title of which had to be changed.
0: Uh, twice, at least. I was wondering. I was wondering if you were going to say the title of that book, but I figured there was it wasn't going to happen.
1: Ten Little Indians, uh, which it was. Oh, I, yes. Which I think the, the renamed book, which was the was the second uh, title, and but that had to be changed too because that was again perceived to be um, offensive. I mean, it was a when I was a child, there was Eeny, mini Miney, Moe, had language in it, which nowadays would be considered to be and I think understandably and correctly considered to be inappropriate to use and uh, but when we used it, actually, I I, I never I never associated it with anything. It was just a word in it that meant to work with the rhyme. But I don't think this particular man was looking for something as you say, like a burning of the libraries, the problem is that the the response, which is one which is consonant with and coherent with the opinions of people who are trying to burn the libraries i not to over the pudding, but i was I was recently watched a couple of documentaries about the uh, trials the uh, for uh, crimes against humanity uh, um, in Cambodia and describing the ideology of the, of the of the Khmer Rouge and their desire to return to year zero, to strip everything down, to return to this pure agrarian state, this Rousseauian state of nature where we could all begin again and we would all be free and fresh and also mixed in with fairly virulent Khmer nationalism which made for a fairly toxic pot when you threw in a, Mao cultural, a, Mao, a Mao's cultural revolutionary impulse on top of it all. How far do you have to go from one point to another to get there? Where, where, there is no... Once you accept the premises of these things, there is no stopping point. There is no breaking point. We, this is just a, sim, a plain attack on the very notion of history. That it's almost irrelevant what is actually happening today, and to and to actually ask the question, but what is the reality today is it dismissed. No, no. First of all, we must remediate all of the sins of the past. All of the sins and all the wickednesses of the past must be remediated. In the present context, of the present conversation, the one that is happening in the United States and is beginning to happen over the Western world, that conversation. The bad guys in it tend to be people from Europe, representing whiteness. Did you see that thing about the uh, in the museum in 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 the United States, where they had an exhibition, and part of the exhibition was talking about these things that we had to escape, which these badges, which were badges of whiteness.
0: Oh, I did, Michael, but it wasn't just a, uh, it wasn't just a museum. In what sense? I believe it was the uh, Smithsonian. It, well, yes,
1: it was a very, very, uh, indeed, it's sort of... The
0: so not not just a not, I mean, It wasn't like,
1: The museum. It wasn't the Museum of Dolls in Toledo. No, it was the, the I, museum. They, yeah,
0: they, I, I'll see if I can find it and put it in the link for this podcast uh, for the listener. But it basically said all of these things are, uh, these are white traits. And... I uh <laughs> I would not.
1: I read it and I thought if I was reading this and I was a person of color if I was Hispanic or Asian or uh, African American or whatever I would be incredibly insulted.
0: Oh yeah, the, the Smithsonian thinks that the ability to work hard or ob- an objective rational linear thinking purely the purview of the white race. Do
1: You know uh, there are all the ones about rationality in and... To delay gratification, all those things, all these—that was fine, yeah. They, they were bad, but the one that stuck out to me was politeness. One of them was listed was politeness, because of course the Chinese and the Japanese and the Indians are famously lo- let it all hang out, aren't they? But they have no sense of propriety or formality or ritual or caste or hierarchy. Pol- Politeness—it—it it means nothing. Nothing across the continent of Asia. That's,
0: for God's sake. I think mean, it was a massive. It was a fantastic document because there's also stuff like uh, part of white culture's steak and potatoes, bland is best. And it just went from really minor things to like.
1: I mean, you could respond to the fact that for the last number of years, the most popular food of the United Kingdom is uh, is chicken tikka. Or is it? But it's, it's a, a curry anyway? Some kind of an Indian curry is the national dish, the most popular dish of of people in the United Kingdom. But that's probably cultural appropriation, and therefore also
0: to be disapproved of. Yeah. So aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States was what the thing was called, and it contained things like uh, hard work is the key to success." Yeah. I mean, I saw I saw a video the other day, and it was a. Uh, it was. I think it was called something like "woke v racist," and it was just like, well, I don't think people should mix with people outside of their own race. I don't think that either. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you You've
1: you've two guys, as it were, two very similar-looking white guys, and one of them is one of them is woke, and one of them like is a KKK racist.
0: The woke guy going, well, you know, I, I think that uh, white people can never get rid of their racism, and the racist going right because there was a guy we had that we kicked out of the lodge because we thought he was, you know, he was, he was kind of lagging. But if you're saying that was just a mistake and he still is, then we've, we've got to let him back in. <laughs> and then the end is just um, the only thing we disagree on is the Jews, and the guy goes, well, you know, I don't I don't really think of them as white, and the racist just goes, I don't either. <laughs> Yeah.
1: I mean, another thing that's become quite a, a hot button issue at the moment in the United States is the issue, obviously, after the 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 the, the, the death of Mr. Floyd and the various protests about uh, police violence has been the, the, the idea of defunding the police. Now, I don't know how many deaths have been associated with the guards and citizens in the last 10 years, not that many anyway. Um not to say that the guards aren't incapable of doing bad things, but uh it, it doesn't seem to be a a, a ra- Are you talking about that a, a, a bloody RTA article? but we have an article now, it's not the opinions expressed in this article do not necessarily represent RTE, but it's an article published.
0: You know what, Michael? They they always say that. But have you ever been asked to have an article published in RTE. Oh,
1: well, constantly, Gary, but I'm so busy, I, haven't. I just
0: can't. And it's weird that for all they say the views expressed do not match with those of RTE, every time I've seen a view in it, I've sort of gone, I'd say that actually expresses quite closely ortie's view. So it's about, are there, are there interesting questions that we can ask
1: about the nature of policing? And lo and behold, they pull out of their hat because these the two individuals are academics in UCC, in both in the Department of Criminology, but at Sociology also. Sociology, described by the late Professor of Modern History, Doctor Corish, as modern day witchcraft, and I'm just leaving that there without comment. These are these are the opinions of Doctor Corish and are not represent not necessarily representative of the opinions of Gripped Media or the this the Right Side Podcast. Have They pulled out of the hat a man called Foucault. Now, Gary, not everybody listening to this necessarily know who Michel Foucault was.
0: No, we should do this on webcam so they could see the (laughs) spit beginning to form at the corner of your mouth. No,
1: I'll tell you what, to be fair, Foucault could write in, well, in French, and not that I read him in French, but that was comprehensible. I mean, he wasn't like his great... uh, his great enemy, uh, the French philosopher Derrida, who, along with a whole bunch of his other other French philosophers, wrote in a manner which was much like reading hieroglyphics. Uh, and I would say a man who could a man who couldn't read an alphabet trying to read hieroglyphics. But Foucault, as and an, he, he had a particular analysis of things like madness, criminality, whatever, which I would say most historians, if not sociologists would say they simply he got the history wrong he got the chronology wrong but they finish up what leaving us out that he is an important figure in french critical thinking and uh, he fi- they finish up the article which is uh, as i said discussion on what lessons we can possibly learn from the the role of uh, the, the nature of our policing system and this and they I finish up with this paragraph and it bears reading, to return to Foucault, could we imagine a vision of justice that does not include punishment but rather the elimination of the conditions that give rise to the injustice in the first place?
0: To which I I would have to say yes, we absolutely can, Michael.
1: Well, However, I you, then I will credit you with more imagination than me.
0: Well, I mean, Michael, this is... Because I can't. I can, imagine, I can imagine many things, like a three-legged dog. I can imagine a three-legged dog, but I can't imagine a four-sided triangle.
1: And to me, this is a four-sided triangle. This is, this is the sugar rock candy mountain.
0: Yeah, I, 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 It's not a good sign if you get to the end of a policy piece and someone goes, can you imagine that? Because okay, let's say I can. Would it fucking work? Like I could imagine the Soviet Union was a land of peace and love overseen by a very friendly father figure. It wasn't though, well no <laughs> and it couldn't. Have been. <laughs>
1: it's funny you should mention the Soviet Union. You and I, Gary, are both aware of somebody who was tweeting and um, some months ago on Twitter, in response to somebody criticizing the Soviet Union and and mentioning silly things about gulags and things, It said actually, the Soviet Union's criminal justice system was extremely liberal and uh, compassionate because it was based on oh, yeah. the notion of rehabilitation. Uh, yeah, I remember. If I... you hadn't been re-educated and rehabilitated within a certain period of time, they simply let you out because you were you were obviously not
0: capable of being
1: rehabilitated.
0: When I was reading, let's say, the Gulag archive Yeah. I, I remember being blown away by the humanity of the Soviet system. And all the guys who were being
1: let out because they, they were deemed not fit for re- rehabilitation.
0: I mean, to be honest, I can see the Gulag system letting some people out. The only problem is I don't think they would have given you provisions, and I think they would have just pointed in a direction and went, well, Moscow is that way.
1: Uh, they might have done, um, if they were in, the, if they were in a, bit of a, a bit of a mood for a lark and a bit of a joke.
0: Yeah, you are ten time zones away from it. Enjoy your walk.
1: Most of the time, they took you out and put a small calibre pistol behind your ear, shot you, and then sent your family a bill for the price of a bullet. So I, the, the notion of it as being a wonderfully compassionate rehabilitation system seems to me to fall bit. But, but lads, come on. When you read this, did did you not hear in the distance John Lennon singing... This was basically just, this was an article which was two sociologists basically stringing out something which is the very, John Lennon's imag- Imagine, which is the world's most annoying song.
0: It's, it's probably the worst song ever written. I mean, Everything from the headline of this, is police abolition relevant to Ireland, to the explanation... Protests in the US have seen repeated calls for abolishing and defunding the police, something which may have relevance beyond that question. It has this tendency that I fucking hate with academics, particularly academics of this type, where they won't just say, I think this, I think we should get rid of prisons. And, you know, when they they position it as a, I'm just asking the question, and you read through it and go, no, you're not. You, you, You have an answer you want people to come to. You were very clearly biased. Just say it. And it'll be a lot easier for everyone. And I would at least respect the fact you said, I think prisons should be shut. No, it... But it's, it's instead, it's just spiel after spiel where they can then go, well, I didn't say that. I just said, you know, other people said that. And, and therefore, they're not my views. You can't complain to me about them. To which I think I would say, fuck off. And just keep fucking off until you can fuck off no more and then go into the sea. All
1: this is just lots of sauce covering bad meat. Because they know the bad meat under this is their core theory and core belief, which goes back to Foucault. Both about, about cr- criminality and mental illness. And the reason I'm bringing this up because they succeeded uh, disastrously in one case. F-
0: yeah. Foucault's application to the closing of mental asylums.
1: Because Foucault believes that ultimately madness is not as madness as we understand it madness is rather it's all, is, is a rational response to to the to the to the nature of the oppressive power systems and structures in which people have to live in the same way as crime as we understand it is simply the rea- is the resp- the inevitable response of certain people to the lived systematic systemic injustice which they experience in their lives through the the domination of the oppressive power structures That surround them, so they got an opportunity, and this is what this is why these people are genuinely dangerous. Is because in the absence of anything which, like what you might call evidence-based medicine, but rather simply on a religious ideological belief which sprang from pure theory, they closed down mental hospitals all over the world, particularly in West. This happened particularly in Western Europe. I saw the results, and anybody who has ever travelled in not anymore because policies have been to a degree rolled back, but also most of the people are now dead. You saw the results of what happened in the 60s and 70s when the mental hospitals were just closed. And there were people, there were certainly, I don't doubt Gary, there were people in mental hospitals who should never have been there. In Ireland, there was a constant scandal about the kinds of people were put into mental hospitals for moral failures, or very often people, with maybe mild intellectual disabilities, or people who just simply excess. There were a problem in the farm. They were claiming on the land. You got the doctor to sign off and in they went and suddenly that was granted. I don't doubt that. Horrible things happened. But you also had a situation where people who either had no family or who had family who had no desire to have any contact with them, who had been in institutions for years, people who had serious psychiatric conditions, perhaps people suffering from bipolar condition, people with schizophrenia, people who needed help and medication, which was thrown out into the streets. People with lots of talk about care in the community, but care in the community, Gary, you know, and I know, it's a great idea and we should do it, but it's very expensive and it's very
0: intensive. Well, I, it, it is very expensive. I... But just to talk about that for a second, because a lot of the time when that's brought up, people will bring it up and just say, well, we just need to fund it more. And that that is an issue. But I would also say this. One of the other problems with it is not the supply of care in the community. It's on the actual user side. If you are dealing with people with severe mental or behavioral issues and you take them outside of institutionalized or controlled environments put them into the general environment, and then require them to adhere to a particular program, it is immensely difficult to get compliance. Yes. I mean, to just get them to turn up. And that's nothing against them. If you're talking about people who have maybe schizoid disorders, it's very understandable why they would be unable to do things like that or would be able to do it... They would struggle to do it consistently while living with the general public. And that does never really seem to be considered. It just seems this naive, oh, they'll be better Also,
1: off there. The, for example, well, of course, these people fundamentally reject um, any kind of a medical model approach to psychiatry. This is just drugging people. The reality is that the ideolo- their ideological beliefs are that if you liberate people from the power structures, then they will be better. They will be healed simply by the, this cathartic act of liberation
0: but have you ever have you ever dealt with someone with a, a severe schizoid disorder i have
1: right. i have and i tell you one of the problems I and mean, it's heartbreaking i mean it's mental illness the, the actual pain of somebody like for example one of the things that it's, it's a bit pissy of me i know but you know when people talk about ocd mm. oh i'm a bit ocd it's it's like having known people who have suffered from ocd it's like a constant grinding pain to try and control to try and hide it to try and keep it control. it's not something you're proud of it's not something you show off it's oh god look at me i'm constantly cleaning i'm always it's 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 a really horrible thing and one of the things people who have schizoid disorders disorder is that the drugs that they have to take with their being med- they're their being compliant is that's a horrible word in a way with their medication it makes, it makes them feel awful, Gary. Very often, it feels like they're, a, a, a phrase often used, like they're swimming through sludge, trying to, through this syrup. Their experience of reality is, is like through a fog or through a, a, a fogged up glass. Everything is dull and difficult, you know? That's very understandable. That you don't want to feel like that. And that after a while you may think, I just don't, I can't do this. And without the supports that you have in a, in, a, in a residential situation, you know, it gets very hard to make sure that people
0: take it. OCD is actually an odd one because the public perception of it is so different than the actual experience of it. It's, it's based largely on what you see. People with OCD being, well, depending on, on what they how they handle it, they can be really anal about certain things but it is fundamentally about anxiety and intrusive thoughts and ways of managing that yeah and it is deeply uncomfortable to live with and a lot of those people have a very low standard of living simply because it's it's incredibly hard to deal with severe ocd same with tourette's syndrome it's mostly seen as sort of a joking matter but people with tourette's syndrome are not do, do not enjoy it no
1: it's not, it's not And what happened was in the back of an ideological disposition, these people just took these, took hospitals, emptied them and threw these people onto the streets in what was, I have always believed an act of unspeakable cruelty. Now, I think there are people from that time who look back and they will admit that they made a mistake. And but I've met people who say, oh, well, it had to be done. Oh, well, yes, there were yeah, there were certain their casualties, but that was inevitable. And for the gro- the global thing, we had to get rid of them. These were these were just prisons for people who were just making different lifestyle choices, whatever. Ultimately, it's a it's a rejection, which isn't an opinion shared by number of I would say maybe fringe groups, but it's not an unusual position, which is a rejection ultimately of the the idea of psychiatry.
0: I mean also this this article one thing that comes to mind is one it must be terrible to have these views in Ireland because it's like raging against the machine except the machine is basically a warm blanket yeah. <laughs> if it's constraining you it is at the at the lightest end possible but lines like this abolitionists acknowledge that everyone in society wants to feel safe the desire for justice to be served when transgressions happen and the importance of the common good being promoted by public institution. If you think everyone in society thinks that, you're a fucking lunatic. (laughs) How so, Gary? Not everyone in society. There is a certain percentage of society that does not care about those things or is openly antagonistic towards that. And we can tell that from a lot of the crime data, that an incredibly small percentage of the population is responsible for an astronomical amount of crimes.
1: Yeah, and I think there's there's quite a bit of data which suggests that um, of certain kinds of crimes that are, where you just have this hardcore of people repeating them, you're looking at... at, at at least a decent number, shall we say, an above-the-population-average number, are sociopaths.
0: But think about it, that was written by a criminologist, Michael.
1: Yeah, it, well, was it? A sociologist also.
0: Yeah, OK, fair point. Someone who studied violence and then came to that notion. Also, I mean, it's incredibly just ignorant of human history. Do you think of the grand scope of human history? There's never been a couple of people who were like, you know what, fuck those public institutions.
1: Yeah. It is, it's a Rousseau, it's like Rousseau, is Again, I mentioned Pol Pot before, but again, it's a kind of Rousseauian thing where ultimately the belief is that what we call civilization is actually a manifestation of a disease. And this disease... Has it's if you, it maybe it's either disease or else it's whatever the word is for something the pathogen. It's either a it's either that or it's a pathogen. It's pathogenic. It causes disease. That it is this. It is it are the structures of Western civilization that actually make people sick, rather than anything else. It's and make people what we call criminals. And if we can only deconstruct those power structures, we can deconstruct and return to this Rousseauian idea of a man living in a state of nature, galumphing around the alpine meadows. It'll all be grand and everybody will be fine and everybody will be healed.
0: According to a certain degree, there is a truth to that, which is fundamentally that law is a construct. Abs- yes, yeah, sure, of course it is. Law oh, is yeah, a so reaction. If you, if you if you want to get rid of law, yeah, you'll get rid of criminals at the same time. Yeah. That doesn't mean you'll have a better society, it's all, because nature is red and two things It's glow. also
1: true that laws tend to exist and evolve in response to human behaviours.
0: It reminds me actually of, um, there's a philosopher called Max Stirner. Uh, Johann Smith is his actual name. He was a contemporary of Marx. He's the founder of individualist anarchism, sometimes called egoism. There's a weird interesting turning point in history in that Engels got really into his work and thought they could apply it to the communist project. And then Marx saw it, and Marx being slightly smarter than Engels realized that, no, this was not a runner. But there is that, like, what if that had gone the other way? Also, Marx is more bourgeois than Engels.
1: Engels is more of a radical. Like, it's Engels that's really the guy pushing feminism and railing against the... Institution of the nuclear family and the patriarch and all that stuff. Marx is Marx is much more interested in the economics and the relationship and the the alienation and the class thing. It's something I've, I always enjoyed. I remember having uh, listening to a a very f- an interesting lecture on the evolution of law and that law evolves in this rather strange and mysterious way along with language. And he said that the, no law. If you find if you go back through all the 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 ancient texts to the Code of Han- Hammurabi or whatever it is, or go back into the Old Testament, that when there's a law, it's always in, it's always made in reaction. Nobody ever made a law that was plucked out of the air. And he gave the example, which I was in one of the music, he said, uh, there is a law uh, in, I don't know, mentioned in Leviticus or, or Deuteronomy or somewhere, which forbids women from getting involved when two men are fighting, for jumping into the middle of the fight and twisting the testicles of one of the men. <laughs> that's a very specific law isn't it gary mm. and it seems extraordinary unlikely that that was somebody who sat down and said just in case we better make a law rather you get the sense that this was something that was going on rather too much amongst the people of israel <laughs> and you get this and you get the answer that says god those israeli women god they were tough they were getting involved their man was getting on the wrong end of a beating they weren't going to stand around and look at it (laughs) but my point obviously yeah law is is a construct but it's a construct in the sense based on or uh, what is perceived to be a necessary response to a human, to a to a a human behavior
0: but that that i think was on sterner sterner's book the ego in its own worth reading if you're interested in that sort of thing um it's apparently very funny in German, but I read it in English. Yeah,
1: I've
0: but I've heard, heard that before.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, have you? Yeah. The, I wouldn't have thought that's a very common sentence. Wouldn't have, it, it's funnier in German. There's a
1: there's Thomas Mann, the great German language novelist. I don't think I'm not sure if Mann was actually German. Maybe he was. I have a notion in my head he was Czech. You no, know that was that Anyway, he wrote a book a novel called Felix Krull. And on the, I remember when I read it, got back 100 years ago as a teenager, on the blurb on the back it said, that rare thing, uh, a tr- the, the great German comic novel. <laughs> and Gary, I read that book and I read it twice. And the only reason I read it twice was because I went back to make, to find the jokes I hadn't found the first time. Because I was reading Evelyn Waugh and I was reading P.G. Woodhouse and I was reading Flann O'Brien. And you know what? The jokes there, I could see them straight on, and they made me even laugh. Felix Krull, the great German comic novel, not a titter. Anyway, so Sterner was apparently very funny in German.
0: Very, apparently. But Sterner basically wanted no constraints on, not human behaviour, but the behaviour of one person. And his idea that people would join together in what would effectively be totally amoral units of self-interest. Okay. But one of Sterner's points was he starts talking about burning the laws down. And uh, he has this big thing on how you have ghosts in your mind that you've been encultured to accept and that you should destroy them. But then he starts talking about law. And he says that the naive view is to tear down law, because then you'll be free. But then he points out that if you get rid of the law against murder, so you can murder a man... Someone could murder you. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes in order to maximize your freedom and your control of yourself, it's better to actually accept legal restraints upon you because, yeah, you could avoid them or you might even be able to totally undermine them, but you wouldn't make yourself any better off.
1: Yeah. That's... But
0: what you should do is get yourself into a position where you can breach the laws with impunity, but keep the laws there to control other people. And I just, the article kind of reminded me of that, just this bizarre, naive view of law and the position of law in society. But it's also
1: naive, isn't it bizarre? It's a, it's a, naive is a generous word, but we'll say naive view of human nature. It reminds the of uh, Kropotkin, the Prince Kropotkin, the great Russian 19th century anarchist uh, philosopher, Said there is. I remember he said there is no such thing as a lazy man. And I remember when I read that, I thought, you know, I'm not sure if you've got around enough, Prince Kropotkin. Now Kropotkin's point, I think, would have been that there's not there's not as a lazy man. It's only a man who has not been able to discover the thing about which he is sufficiently passionate to make him engaged. No, there may be a truth to that. I think there probably is a truth to that. But I don't think there's all of the truth to that. And I think it may be possible that in a normal functioning human society, there are
0: indeed lazy men. Yep, and there are also men who you don't want to follow their passion.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that is, that is a great truth. Have you noticed, which I think we might have talked about this before, the word passion and passionate infests the language these days.
0: It's like nits. Do you know who's very passionate about their work, Who? Michael? Like, absolutely like, live for it. serial killers.
1: They are. They are very dedicated, very dedicated.
0: And they take little mementos of it to remember their work, and they're constantly working out how to be better at it.
1: And I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm told that the very best are the most passionate of all, because they're the ones that don't get caught. Um... I I listener may or may not have come across as a TV show called Mind Hunters.
0: I was actually I have I don't I only seen I'm not sure I've seen all of it but the seasons I saw were actually very good. The first some great acting. Very good
1: acting. The first series there's two two seasons there's a third to, there's at least one more to come. It's about these two it's based shall we say based on Uh, a true story about how the behavioural unit in Quantico with the FBI first got going and the idea of um, how you, what's the phrase they use for serial killers? Profiled serial killers. Anyway, they go and they have these chats with, uh, is it Ed Kemper?
0: Ed Kemper, yeah. Now
1: the actor playing Kemper is brilliant. He's physically very like him, but his demeanour where he's affable and nice and funny and then bang he's absolutely fucking terrifying but he t- talks about this sense he has this sense of his passion for his work and describing his work his life's work and you're absolutely right yeah, the, the, the great now we, and there are others and we can go on in the 20th century who pursued many things with great passion and conviction and intensity and sincerity do you know? Yeah, there's
0: this, this this wonderful idea that the belief you have in something equates to the goodness of that thing.
1: And somehow is an excuse for being absolutely off-the-wall, ball-and-mad wrong about something. Oh, well, they're very passionate about it, you know. Well, go and read a book. We saw recently um, a couple of people become disenchanted with the Green Party and policies of the Green Party, right? And they expressed... About the directions they should, they would wish to go. And many of the things they wish to do had been quite recently tried and are still being tried, for example, in the country of Venezuela, Gary, in South America, and have been tried in maybe two or three or four dozen other countries in the world in the last, well, since 1917. And every single time they've been tried, they have failed magnificently with consequent human misery on a grand scale. And yes, if you passionately believe in social justice, you passionately believe that we have to do something, even though it's impossible, we still should try. Then you get this kind of, oh, well, you know, they're, they mean well. They're, they're ah He's very passionate about us. No. I used to say, as a joke, and I wanted to be clear, I used to say to people, you know, if you ever meet a utopian, shoot him. Because if you don't, he will be back to shoot you. And I think the experience of the 20th century bears out the truth of that. Because utopians are passionate about creating heaven on earth. And why wouldn't you be, Gary? If you can create heaven on earth, why would you not be passionate about
0: it? I mean, this this is the problem with purely utilitarian moral systems. If you can build a perfect world that doesn't have an expiration date, that could be maintained for an indefinite period of time. If your moral system works purely on a comparison between uh, different aspects, no, d- depending on your system of utilitarianism, that can change. But let's say human well-being, and you can create a world full of infinite human well-being, you are morally allowed, if not obligated, to do fucking anything. Yeah. And you're still doing the morally good thing. So they can torture you. They can kill you if you stand in their way. And not only. They will absolutely believe. You are morally bad. And they are morally good. And you know. Because they are. They are in the system they hold. When you come across somebody. Who is
1: absolutely honest. It is sometimes breathtaking. I I might have mentioned it before. But. The example that always occurs to me is there was a very, very great British historian called Eric Hobsbawm, the great uh, historian of the 20th century, who was an avowed Marxist, Leninist, communist. And towards the end of it, he, he was criticized by people like Robert Service, that he had never really taken on board the fullness of the crimes of Stalin and Lenin et al. not just in the Soviet Union but in, in other places where the uh, project had been attempted. And he was asked in an interview, anyway, he said, you know, Professor Sir Professor Opsworth, if another, if the deaths of another twenty million had actually been necessary but would have guaranteed the pro the the proletarian paradise, you know, the 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 advent of the the withering way of the state and the dictatorship of the the proletariat, would that have been acceptable? And Abspon said yes. Now reflect on that. My suspicion is that in other circumstances, if you ask somebody if X and Y was going to be the result, but you had to kill 20 million people to do it, would that be okay? And they said yes. In other, Mostly you'd, you'd suspect the person you were talking to was a psychopath.
0: Yeah, but they're usually just utilitarians. Utilitarians are quite fun because you can poke at them about gang rape as well, which is at least amusing. Um. And then they get very blustery and they, they say, no, we solved that problem. And you sort of go, yes, but it was a problem for quite a long time, wasn't it? And your solutions are kind of nonsense, actually. You just started redefining things you can't really measure.
1: I'm not sure fun is the word out but it's uh,
0: I, I Oh come on, have you never had the joy of talking to a, a committed utilitarian Oh I have, I have. When they're drinking? And you're sort of going, so how many people have to be there before there's a moral obligation for it to happen? And you just get this sort of <laughs> Yeah.
1: yes, yes. It is um it's one of the problems with the calculate the nature of the the other problem, problem with utilitarianism, and I think we maybe should draw, a clo- uh, draw this to a close because at this stage, I'm fairly sure if there is any listeners left, they are grad- definitely dying of boredom. But they have this that utilitarians have the same problem that communists have, which is what von Mises described as the problem of calculation, that to, if you base the morality of an act on the basis of the... The additional happiness, the net happiness it will produce or the net pleasure it will produce in the world. The problem is that you have absolutely no way of calculating what that means because you can say, well, that will produce, you might, you might, I can't see how you would, but you might be able to say, well, right now immediately it will produce X effect. But we've absolutely no way of knowing how that how that effect will respond in a week or a, te- in, or a month or a year or 10 years or 20 years time. How that will affect the global uh, balance of happiness or pleasure—it's is impossible to know. We, you, you have a problem of calculation, so the whole thing falls down. As if you want to use it as a way of deciding on which, if an act is moral or immoral, whether you should do something or not do something, to ask well, what's the utility? Is a bit like say, well, what's what's the price of potatoes when you don't have a market? You 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 can't tell because you don't know. You've no way of working it out.
0: But yeah, I think utilitarianism really, really showed the value of just even an arbitrary moral system. At which, where people at just certain points are just told, "No, you can't do that." You just can't. Why? It's never good. God said so.
1: That's a good enough reason for anybody.
0: God said so. You you can't rape your neighbor because God said so, and that doesn't matter how happy you'd be. And about. you know what?
1: One thing I will say about God. I mean, there are there are differences. But when you go around and collect all of his opinions from his major statements at different times in different places around the world, he is remarkably consistent on the core message. No killing, no robbing, stealing, envying, jealousy, resentment stuff is bad, lying is bad, be nice to your parents, wash your hands. It's all pretty, you know,
0: there's a lot... It's almost as if, when you examine the globe, there are certain behaviours that promote social growth and stability. Yes, it's, it's almost and like that. a successful society, and those successful societies dominated those who were less successful, therefore becoming the only societies to reach this point. And uh, we're just taking a hatchet to that. Big old big hatchet. Yeah. hatches process that can only lead to good things.
1: Well, good things followed by... Misery, societal collapse, starvation and death. But other than that, yeah, it'll be it'll
0: be fine. I mean the West hasn't fallen yet. We've only been undermined and we've already got a return to state sanctioned genocide. So you know, like, let's see where this goes. I'm putting
1: my money in Bhutan. Anyway. I think it the time it's it is time to take this podcast out behind the the shed and put a small calibre bullet in the back of it behind its ear I think Uh, we will be back on Friday we will,
0: I think this is one of the podcasts I class as the dark one of the
1: darks Yeah. hopefully um, I will be talking about some of these issues with uh, Professor Glenn Lowry this week and then we'll have that we'll be able to get that up sometime soon we also, I'll be talking about some of the stuff to Benjamin Boyce so that'll be good fun so, we've got some good podcast some good interviews coming up. But until then, uh, stay safe, stay well. I will be back on Friday. All the best.